Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy, here with my co-host Hattie Dillac. Hello, Hattie. Hi, Kate. Great to be here for this edition of the podcast. And as always, thanks to our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. Well, Kate, it really is beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I reckon a lot of us have gone for the decorations a little bit earlier than usual this year. Have you? Oh, yeah, I've got my wreath up. Haven't done my tree yet. A little bird told me that you might have done your tree already. Yes, it's proudly sitting in the corner of my room, completely decked out in a lot of animal-themed decorations. That's the the, the only theme I've gone for this year is glitter and animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're all really desperate to bring on the festive spirit as soon as possible this year. In fact, you can even book a Zoom chat with the Library Santa this week. It's meant to be for children, but I am actually quite tempted. Be a break from seeing my face on Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many Christmassy books to read over the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about some of those that are available as unlimited titles on BorrowBox later on in the episode. Now, I would say in recent years, it's become something of a Christmas tradition to settle in and watch the latest Agatha Christie film or TV drama. So it makes absolute sense to have Agatha as our author of the month for December. You'll find more details about the life and work of this queen of crime fiction on our Hampshire Libraries blog. And it means that this month's podcast guest, Sophie Hanna, couldn't be a better choice since she came into our virtual studio to talk about her latest Hercule Poirot book, The Killings at Kingfisher Hill. Later in the podcast, we'll be joined by Amber from Hyde Library, who's going to give us some of her recommendations for good reads. And I might even sneak in a question about whether she's got a Christmas favourite book as well. Okay, so on to our guest author, Sophie Hanna, someone who's long been a favourite of ours on the Love Your Library podcast. Sophie is a Sunday Times and New York Times bestseller. She's been published in 49 languages and 51 countries, and her books have sold millions of copies worldwide. She started out as a poet and has so far published about seven collections of poetry, with one of them shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Award. Apparently, her poetry is studies at GCSE, A-level and degree level across the UK. In fact, she's been an academic fellow at both Oxford and Cambridge, and her work stands out for its understated wit, humour and warmth. But it was her novel Little Face, published in 2006, that really put Sophie on the literary landscape. It was the first of, so far, 11 books in her Waterhouse and Zayla series, renamed Case Sensitive when it was filmed by the BBC. Her career took on an additional aspect when, with the blessing of Agatha Christie's family and estate, she wrote a new Hercule Poirot novel, The Monogram Murders, which was a bestseller in more than 15 countries. And she has since published two more Poirot novels, Closed Casket and The Mystery of Three Quarters, both of which were instant Sunday Times top 10 bestsellers. Here's Sophie when I met up with her online to talk about The Killings of Kingfisher Hill, her latest Poirot novel. We'll begin with a short reading from the start of the book. Chapter 1. Midnight Gathering. It is not midnight when this tale begins, but ten minutes before two on the afternoon of the 22nd of February, 1931. That was when the strangeness started, as Monsieur Hercule Poirot and Inspector Edward Catchpool, his friend and the teller of this story, stood with thirty strangers in a dispersed huddle on London's Buckingham Palace Road. 
Our group of men and women and one child were soon to be travellers on a journey that felt peculiar and puzzling to me long before I knew quite how extraordinary it would become. We were congregated by the side of the motor coach that was to take us from London to the famed Kingfisher Hill country estate near Hazelmere in Surrey, a place of outstanding natural beauty according to many. Despite all of us passengers being present well in advance of the coach's scheduled departure time, we had not yet been permitted to board. Instead, we shivered in the damp February chill, stamped our feet and blew on our gloved hands to warm ourselves as best we could. It was not midnight, but it was the sort of winter day that is light-starved at dawn and remains so deprived for its duration. It struck me as I shivered by Poirot's side that I had more in common with the babe in arms than with any other members of our group. Thirty of our band of thirty-two knew why they were going wherever they were going on that day. The baby and I were the only people present who had not the faintest notion of why we were about to board the garishly painted motor coach. And of the two of us, only one perceived his ignorant state as a problem. All I knew was the coach's destination, Kingfisher Hill, a private country estate of some 900 acres with a golf club, two tennis courts and a swimming pool that boasted warm water all year round. A country home within the quiet and leafy confines of the Kingfisher Hill estate was out of the reach of all but the wealthiest of people. But that did not prevent Londoners of all denominations from talking about it endlessly. I might have been eager to enter those blessed gates for the first time, had Poirot not been so determined to withhold from me the reason for our visit. As it was, the sense that I was being kept even more in the dark than usual proved too great an irritant. Was I, perhaps, on my way to meet a future queen? It was sometimes said at Scotland Yard that the inhabitants of Kingfisher Hill were mostly royal personages and aristocrats, and anything seemed possible on a journey of Poirot's devising. The coach departed promptly at two o'clock. I can therefore confidently locate at ten minutes before two the moment that I noticed her. The unhappy woman with the unfinished face. This is your fourth Hercule Poirot novel, you haven't quite reached the, is it 33 Poirot novels that Christy herself wrote, but yeah. I'm sure it, it won't be long before you catch <laughs> So would you mind starting by telling us a little bit about the killings at Kingfisher Hill? So Poirot and his sidekick, Catchpool, who is his sidekick in all of my books. Catchpool is the narrator of all my Poirot novels, um, and he's a Scotland Yard inspector. So Poirot and Catchpool are travelling by luxury passenger coach from London to an exclusive country estate. Um, in the home counties. And the reason they're going there is because they've been summoned by a resident of the Kingfisher Hill estate, whose name is Richard Devonport. And he insists that his fiancée, who is about to be hanged for the murder of his brother, Richard is convinced she didn't do it and wants Poirot to come and uh, save her life, basically. So off they go on this luxury passenger coach to Kingfisher Hill. But 10 minutes into the journey, a woman on the coach stands up and is visibly frightened and terrified and distraught and says, I cannot sit in the seat I'm sitting in for a moment longer or I will be murdered. Uh, Poirot obviously speaks to her, tries to find out what's going on. And that mystery is kind of very, very puzzling. And then sometime later, a body turns up in Richard Devonport, in Richard Devonport's house at Kingfisher Hill and nobody knows who the body is, but there's a note on the body that says, you sat in a seat you should never have sat in. So Poirot then thinks, how can the 
distressed woman on the coach and her weird story about how she'll be murdered if she sits in that seat for a moment longer, how can that possibly link up to the murder of Richard Devonport's brother and the imminent execution of his fiancée? Um, but at the same time, he believes, Poirot believes that they must be connected because of the note that's found on the new body for, at the family home. So uh, yeah, so lots of mysteries and puzzles. I mean, as you've just explained, uh, and as we might have come to expect from a Sophie Hanna story, this book opens with this inexplicable scenario. In fact, there's more than one inexplicable yes. scenario. It's actually a very difficult book to blurb quickly because <laughs> I bet. What, what happens on the coach is that, you know, there's not only the woman saying she's going to be murdered if she sits in that seat, but there's also something else very unusual that happens, which I, I won't go into because, you know, otherwise we'd run out of time. And am I right in thinking this kind of intriguing setup is something you've kind of owed to Christie herself? It's in your DNA to start with an inexplicable mystery. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I've always loved about Agatha. And it's one of the things I've been, you know, a sort of conscious influence that I chose to be influenced by um, pretty much since I started writing crime fiction, even before I wrote prior novels. When I was writing, you know, contemporary thrillers, which I, I still do write contemporary thrillers, but pretty much in the whole of my crime writing oeuvre, I always gravitate towards opening mysteries. So mysteries at the beginning of novels where there's something really puzzling going on and the reader can't even begin to speculate about what's going on. Because so many murder mysteries, which I think are less mysterious than Agatha's, and I'm a big mystery fan, so what I love about crime fiction is the mystery is the puzzle element. That's, that's you know, my whole thing that I love. So lots of murder mysteries start with a dead body and a police detective or a team of investigators or whatever. And the mystery is, here's a dead body who killed them. And that is mysterious, but it's not like you can't imagine any explanation because you can go, well, probably someone killed them who didn't like them very much. And it's almost as though, like, you've almost solved the mystery. It's just a question of finding out who and why. Whereas what Agatha did so brilliantly was show you at the very beginning of a novel a mystery that was so outlandish or impossible seeming that the reader can't even begin to speculate as to what might be going on. And for me, that was always what hooked me. And so that's exactly what I tried to do. I, and I've always wanted to know, which comes first? Do you think of the inexplicable scenario and then try and work out the solution? Or do you already have the solution when you come up with the problem? It's about 50-50. Okay. My, my first two Poirot novels, I thought of what I thought was a brilliant solution first okay. and then had to work backwards to an impossible premise. Uh, but The Mystery of Three Quarters and The Killings of Kingfisher Hill started with the opening mystery and then I had to solve it myself, <laughs> yes. as Poirot solved it. Although actually with The Killings at Kingfisher Hill, the whole idea for the book all of it, all the elements, all the plot points, all the character stuff, it all just kind of landed in my head as if by magic. It really felt like a sort of magical, complete book idea that just got sent from on high. So obviously being massively superstitious and melodramatic, I <laughs> to imagine that Agatha had given it to me. Can you tell me a bit more about your relationship with Agatha Christie? I've noticed that among my notes, I've jotted down frighteningly encyclopedic knowledge. <laughs> um, so, yeah, tell me a bit about uh, about how you feel about Agatha Christie. Uh, well, I mean, I think she's the greatest crime writer, mystery writer that's ever lived. I first read her when I was 12, started with The Body in the Library and loved it so much that I thought, right, I'm reading every word this woman's ever written. And then I did. And then I've been rereading her about 
every 10 years or so, I reread all her books. So I am what's known as a super fan. It's interesting you say 12 years old, because I think that is the ty- the age. I, I, that was when it hit me. My grandparents had the entire collection. And I love the way you describe Enid Blyton as the gateway drug to Agatha, which I think is absolutely totally, right. Totally, yeah. And I mean, it was it was almost like, like these days, in, in sort of online marketing terms, people who know about online marketing, they talk about a funnel system. So you get a, a potential customer falling into the top of one of your funnels, <laughs> and then they go all the way down, and there's another funnel waiting to catch them, to take them to your product. And it really does feel as though Enid Blyton was such an efficient first funnel to lead people to drop happily into the Agatha Christie funnel. It's almost as though Enid and Agatha kind of like had a deal where they were like, right, you hook them first and then when you're yeah. done with them, pass them on to me. Because <laughs> I, I, I meet so many people who were Enid Blyton fans before they were Agatha Christie fans. How did your association with the Hercule Poirot books come about in the first place? By complete chance and coincidence, my agent just had the idea. I mean, I would never have thought of it in a million years because I just thought, I assumed that the only person who ever wrote about Poirot was Agatha Christie. And I thought my role was just to read about Poirot, which I was very happy with. I would never have become discontent with that arrangement. But my agent one day was in a meeting at HarperCollins and he just remembered that they were Agatha's publishers and that I was an Agatha fan. And he said, hey, you publish Agatha Christie. Why don't you do a new novel with one of her famous characters? My author, Sophie Hannah, is a huge fan. She'd be a brilliant continuation writer. And HarperCollins said, no, 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 the family would never allow such a thing. And then the very next day, that editor had a meeting with the Christie family. And at that meeting, they said... You'll be astonished to hear this after everything we've said over the years, but we, the family, are now starting to think that a new book might be a very good thing. And so yeah. it all went from there. But, you know, total chance and, uh, and coincidence, really. And I gather that uh, Christie's grandson was involved in saying that, yes, she's the right author because she's got this passion and she's got the right plot line. Yeah. So Matthew Pritchard, who is Agatha's grandson, he was the chairman of Agatha Christie Limited at the time. So he was the one who approved it. Uh, And yeah, I mean, I later found out that, you know, the reason they said yes was uh, it wasn't only Matthew, it was Matthew and his son, James, who is now the executive chairman of Agatha Christie Limited. And they both have told me since that they could absolutely see that I was passionate about Agatha Christie. And so they trusted that if I did write continuation novels, I wouldn't try and like make it all about me. I would try and honour the memory of Agatha Christie and her legacy as best I could. And that was very important to them. And how has your passion for Christie helped you write for the character of Hercule Poirot? That's kind of a hard one to answer. I mean, I know that I couldn't have done it for any other writer. I mean, there's loads of writers I really like, but I wouldn't have felt that I could write a continuation novel featuring one of their characters. I think Agatha Christie and Poirot are just like, that. it feels like they're just in my blood. It feels like I've known them both for so long. Uh, so it felt like a manageable task, you know. And I, when I write about Poirot, I feel as though I'm writing about someone I know really well. Yeah, so you kind of know how they'd react to different situations. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I don't, you know, I've, I've always been very deliberate about the fact that I don't want to change him. I want him to remain Agatha Christie's Poirot. I don't want to suddenly start messing around with the character. Um, but what's weird is, in my books, obviously, new things happen because everything else apart from Poirot is invented by me which means Poirot has to have conversations and dialogues and interviews where I have to know what Agatha Christie's Poirot would say in that situation. But the weird thing is, I always do. 
Like I do yeah. know what he would say. And, and and so that's what I have him saying. But it's it's kind of very strange because I'm like tapping into this resource that was in someone else's imagination. So like I don't quite know why I'm able to feel it works so well, but it does just work somehow. As you've said, you're a huge fan of crime fiction generally. And I understand that if you start a book and there's no mystery emerging in the first few pages, you almost don't consider it a proper book. But I've also heard you talk about this, the kick of the puzzle and the solution. Um, Would you tell us a little bit more about this idea of this kick? So, yeah, I really love the mystery genre because what it does is it kind of deliberately and artificially increases as the book goes along, the level of frustration the reader feels at not knowing and the desire to know. So you encounter a puzzle at the beginning, you really want to know the answer, you don't know the answer. And as you're sort of reading the book, it can often seem as like, oh, I still don't know, I still don't know. And I'm getting even more desperate to know because everything's getting deeper and more more intriguing. And so it really does crank up your desperation to know. But that frustration is so enjoyable because there's the guarantee that you will find out. Whereas in real life, we often find ourselves desperate to know things which actually have great importance to our lives, but there's no way of finding them out. And often we never do. Yeah, and that could, I guess, be one of the reasons that people love crime fiction, particularly in times of stress. It's that nice resolution you get at the end. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, you you know, you will feel frustrated, but you will get a big payoff and everything's going to be okay in the end. Now, I'm guessing there's a huge difference between writing this sort of golden age crime novel that is kind of set in the 1930s, I guess, and a contemporary novel in that you kind of just get to tell the story, uh, whereas contemporary novels, you maybe have to go to a few more lengths to create the illusion that the reader is discovering and witnessing the events. Could you explain a bit more about that? And and did you enjoy that sense of freedom that you get with the Poirot novels that maybe you don't when you're writing contemporary crime novels? I mean, I enjoy both in a different Different way, but I, it's something I've noticed sort of pretty much from as soon as I started writing my first prior novel. That in the sort of conventions of the classic golden age mystery novel, it's totally acceptable for there to be a kind of joy in the storytelling, which I really love. In contemporary crime fiction, the convention is that the writer will lay it all out almost so that the reader doesn't notice that they're being told a story and the reader is just like, oh, so this is happening and I'm observing it. No contemporary crime novel would begin with, you know, let me tell you about the fascinating mystery I solved. It all started when, you know, and that that does happen in in golden age crime fiction. So that was the sort of surface difference I noticed. But I also noticed that my contemporary crime novels, although tonally they're very different from my Poirot's, In terms of their underlying priorities, they're not different at all. They all, whether I'm writing a Poirot novel or a contemporary thriller, I always start with an outlandish, intriguing or impossible-seeming premise. I always have clues. I always have the focus. In terms of the focus of why I want the reader to read on, the focus is always on solving the mystery. And I do as much as I can signal to the reader that this is an exciting story. Now, you started your writing career as a poet uh, and a very successful poet. I'm assuming there must be qualities and skills that you developed as a poet, which you are then able to bring to your crime writing. Yeah, I mean, I think being very precise about language and being very precise about structure. I write um, metrical rhyming poetry. 
And so structure was always very important to me. And that's crucial if you're writing a crime novel, because, you know, you want to put this clue here and you want to put that clue there and you want this revelation here and that one there. So um, that to me is what crime fiction and metrical formal poetry have in common. I've just mentioned your poetry because, of course, your Hercule Poirot books aren't your only work. In fact, I find it hard to believe that there aren't several different Sophie Hannas because <laughs> you have so many projects ongoing at the same time. There's uh, 11 in the hugely successful Simon and Charlie series of books, which started with, I think, Little Face was the first one, yeah. as well as your poetry and your co- a course director of an MA in crime writing at Cambridge University. Yeah. There's your brilliant podcast, um, How to Hold a, a Grudge, and and, uh, and your dream author mentoring program for authors. I could go on. I have no idea how you have time f- time to, to do it all. Uh, I'd, I'd find it exhausting keeping up with you. I did want to ask you about the serious agenda your books often have. That is, as well as having a very gripping storyline, you seem quite keen to to write about the kind of things we should be more aware of, whether that's the damaging effects of narcissism or personality disorders. Uh, Do you feel that you have a a role to educate people about issues we Um, don't know enough about? uh, I don't know whether I feel it's sort of as a duty, but I mean, everything just sort of comes from an idea that I find irresistible. So, you know, I wanted to write a self-help book about how holding grudges in the right way actually really helps us and makes us more forgiving, not less forgiving, because people are very negative about grudges. And the way I sort of approach them, it's actually incredibly empowering and enables you to move on emotionally and process anger a lot more effectively. So I thought, I have to write this self-help book, How to Hold a Grudge, because um, no one else is going to write it. Then I created the podcast from that because there was, you know, I I just was inundated with emails and letters about the grudge book. And at first I was going to do a second grudge book. And then I thought, no, actually, what do I love most at the moment? It's listening to podcasts. I'm a big podcast fan. So I thought I'll do it as a podcast, then it can just run and run. And it was really exciting to sort of try a different form of uh, of output. And then my dream author program, I, I really was sort of passionate about helping writers, but also helping them in a particular way, helping them to realize that whatever their situation, whatever their writing goal is, or whatever challenge they're facing, they will imagine that the main obstacle to them, you know, achieving their goal is something external and factual. Whereas always, I nearly said almost always, but in fact, it is always the main thing standing in the way of them and their writing dreams is their thoughts that they are mistaking for facts. They are believing things about their situation and their writing abilities and their life situation. They're believing things that they just think are the truth. And it's those beliefs that are creating the obstacles stopping them getting to where they want to be. So, I mean, my dream author program has been running for 18 months now. And, you know, people are getting six-figure deals, multi-six-figure deals, auctions, you know, publishers fighting over their books purely from, I mean, obviously the books are good as well, but purely from realizing that all those obstacles they thought existed were actually just thoughts that were optional and that they could choose to stop believing. So I decided that I would set up this coaching program for writers because there's so many resources out there for writers in terms of like how to write better, how to approach an agent. But there was absolutely nothing that really focused on the emotional and and psychological side of things. I was going to ask what you're working on at the moment. Is there a a new Poirot or a new uh, contemporary novel? Well, I'm working on a new Simon and Charlie book. So um, 
combination of all the Poirot writing I've been doing and several standalones, which, you know, I've loved writing standalones. My latest standalone is called Haven't They Grown? And it's about two children who appear not to have grown at all in 12 years. When the protagonist sees them 12 years after she last saw them, they are no taller, they are no older, they're wearing the same clothes, and she hears their mum call them by their name, so it's definitely them. But obviously, she knows that it's impossible for two children not to have grown <laughs> in 12 years. So that's the mystery there. So like, I, I've had various uh, books out, which are standalones, which I've loved. But uh, people keep writing to me saying, what about Simon and Charlie? Why haven't we had a Simon and Charlie? And it's now, I think, nearly five years since the last Simon and Charlie was published. So they are coming back with a big fanfare. And uh, that's the book I'm working on now. Sophie really is an unstoppable force of energy and I can highly recommend her podcast about holding grudges, which is actually really funny and quite thought-provoking. So getting on to the next section of the podcast, we are now being joined by Amber from Hyde Library to talk about some of her top picks. Of course, as always, we'll include links to all the books we mention on our episode show note. So yeah, welcome to Hampshire Library's podcast, Amber. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. So, Amber, you're from Hyde Library. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the library? I've never been there. Is it sort of in the centre of Hyde? Um, yeah, so Hyde is quite a small village. and um, We've got a little precinct and the Hyde Library is just off the main precinct in a small kind of row of shops. But it's, it's really nice. It's a really nice building. We're by the sea and we've got a little marina just down so people can get the ferry and go on the little pier train. So, so yeah, it's actually quite a nice day out to come and visit Hyde Library, to be honest you can do a lot of different things but I imagine you've you've really missing all your regular visitors to the library although am I right in thinking like all libraries you're running the click and collect service ready reads we are yes we're doing our ready read service it's proven to be very popular actually and um, it is quite nice to go and choose books for people that you think they might like and we do try and get ones that um, kind of as much to your liking as possible but obviously we can't guarantee anything but it is nice to go around and, and have a browse and, and choose things for people on recommendations and and it, yeah, it's, it's a really nice job, actually. Yeah, no, I bet. So what, what happens is that, yeah, people, you can register online. What happens is that you will select some books to fit their kind of the usual choices of things that they like, the, the type of books they like. And they, they can just then swing by the library and pick it up. They don't have to go in and, and browse. So it's a safe way of doing it if, if anybody's worried about having to kind of come in and touch the same thing as other people. So um, all our returns have been quarantined. So, so it's a much safer way of picking up books. I love the sound of that. I'm such a lazy person. So I love the idea of just sending out a list of things that I like and just receiving these expertly chosen books. Very little effort from my part. So it sounds like a great thing for me. I really like the idea too, that it might take you out of your kind of reading rut um, because I tend to read the same authors over and over and over again. But if somebody like you could say, OK, well, if you like this sort of genre, then how about trying this? And I guess it's not going to work every time, but sometimes you're going to be introducing a reader to a, a, a new author that they've never come across before. Yes, it's a bit of a, a mystery bag. So it's quite nice to see people's faces when they when they open and see the first book and they think, oh, wow, that's something that I never would have thought of, but actually might really enjoy. 
I get a bit stage fright when I'm handing over books that I know I've picked. <laughs> That's really funny. I love that. And uh, and speaking of introducing a new author, you've picked a book recommendation for all of us to read. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about your choice? Who wrote it? What's it all about? Yeah, of course. Um, so I chose Where the Crawdads Sing, which is by Delia Owens. Um, it was published in 2018, but I was a bit more aware of it when it came out in the Richard and Judy's Book Club. So that's where I became a bit more familiar with it. Um, but it's, I mean, it's been really popular. It's its topped the New York Times bestseller of 2019 and also 2020 as well. Give us a little bit, if you can, difficult question because it's a complex book. Give us a bit of a synopsis about where the book takes us. So it follows two stories along two different timelines. So the main character, Kaya, and her coming of age story is kind of intertwined with a local murder investigation a lot further down the line. So it covers two kind of times in history, I suppose. And I don't usually respond to that way of writing very well because I like something to be quite linear. But actually, she did it so well that I was able to keep up and I really enjoyed it. And the, the setting, the North Carolina marshes, it really seems to shape the story. It's almost like another character in the novel. Yes, it is. It is. Um, the way she uses kind of descriptive words and how she how she describes it, it's almost like it has the heart and soul of its own. So it is almost like its own character, the marsh. Yeah, I love that descriptive writing, all the language of the marshes and swamps and these sort of woven, intertwining estuaries and all of that stuff. The wildlife was just brilliant writing. If you're looking for an indulgent book that's heavy on description, then this is this is absolutely one for you. So it's, it's called Where the Crawdads Sing. A big, big element of the book is isolation and seclusion, remoteness as well. So I think, yeah, you know, obviously the title is a bit of a play on that. It's, it's somewhere that it doesn't exist. It's so remote that it doesn't exist. And it also weaves in that, you know, North Carolina uh, wildlife background as well. I thought it's a nice title. Yeah, I was interested, actually, that my husband, when he heard the title, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, those are crayfish. And he's actually cycled around that area and he'd heard crayfish being called that on menus and things. So it was a term that was familiar to him, but it's very localised. Yeah, I didn't have a clue what it was. And actually, um, when I was doing a bit of research on the book to find out more about the author and that kind of thing, one of the first things that came up was how often people had now Googled crawdads to see what they were because of the book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It did make me really want to visit the area for the descriptions and also the food as well. I kept my mouth was watering at some of the things that uh, it was describing. Although I guess it, it's probably changed a fair bit from the setting of the story because as you say, it's sort of set in the 60s and then goes back to her early childhood. And her childhood, absolutely devastating. She gets failed by one person after another. Maybe, Amber, could you, could you talk a bit about who you think failed her and, and also who didn't fail her and whether there are maybe choices that could have been made for her or by her that could have been better? Yes, I think um, obviously you find out a bit more about her mother's story later down the line. So at first I thought, oh, what a horrible person her mother is to leave her. Um, but when you find out a bit more, you kind of realise that maybe it was her father that failed her in the biggest way. Yeah, I know. It just felt like one after another of them were, were, were leaving the family home and leaving her to cope with the father who was who was just complete well it was yeah it was interesting that because he was so awful but there was a time when you felt they were beginning to have more of a closeness but uh, mm. you, th you thought they'd found that common ground and it was a, the start of possibly a, a relationship fix the theme of being failed by people wasn't overcome by that relationship turning one corner 
that was quite heartbreaking to see that she actually did have a bit of a bond with her father and she was so happy that he was starting to teach her things and they were doing things together and then, yeah. And then she also had relationships with some some of the locals, in particular Jumpin and Mabel, who are the local business owners who she trades her various catches of the day with for, for money and goods. I thought that that relationship was quite heartwarming. It was, I don't know, a parental but not, and neighbourly but not as well. And yeah, it was an embrace. Uh, she was embraced by them to be included by them, which I thought was, you know, it's a nice relationship to see. Why do you think they were written into the story like that? And what do you think they were able to offer Kaya? Um, I think that, like you say, it was it was kind of a parental thing, wasn't it? Especially with Mabel, I think she felt a little bit responsible for her. They were also both kind of outcasts, maybe slightly. I know there was a bit of racial tension in the South at that time. And I think maybe he kind of warm to her and he could appreciate what she was going through and I know people in where they lived weren't very nice towards her were they so I think maybe he could he could identify with with those types of parts of her character and yeah I think that was very useful and also there was one part where she saw how he was outcast as well when he was walking home and she was able to kind of see that for the first time so I think she's obviously been very secluded and doesn't have a clue and she could kind of see that he was maybe being treated very similar to her and I think that brought them both together. So yeah, that was really nice. It was nice that she had somebody somewhere, at least. Yeah, I really liked that that scene in the book. In fact, I did find that relationship she had with them very moving. I was, I'm not ashamed to say, I was moved to tears by um, by some of that that work. I, I was really interested to see that this was the first book of fiction that was written by Delia Owen. She's had books published before about wildlife, and you can see, as Hattie was saying that really detailed observation and vivid descriptions of wildlife throughout the book. And Amber, was that something that you really enjoyed as well? I did, actually. Um, I'm not really a big wildlife buff, and I don't think I would choose to read nonfiction about it a lot. But the way she described everything got me got me really interested. And it was kind of the way that she was investigating and she, she made her own books just from what she found. Aside from nature being one of the things that you most notice about the book, because it's this sort of dual timeline, you also get this, as you were saying before, Amber, this brilliant coming of age story. And that, I think, was written really nicely. Apart from the fact that it's set in the past, I felt really nostalgic for that kind of growing up, coming of age type thing, as you do in, it's actually something that Stephen King's It does. And that also does a dual timeline. So I think that maybe this is, is a device that's really useful for evoking that sense of nostalgia. As well as that, we also have this sort of romantic element to the book where she forms relationships with these two very different characters. What do you think was the point of showing those two different characters? What, do, what did you think about the romantic element of the book? Um, I was quite surprised. I thought it was quite surprising actually. Um, I really wasn't expecting there to be a romantic love interest when she was on her own so much. But I think it's, it's definitely important to have that in a book because everybody can relate to it. So it's very interesting maybe that a com all coming of age stories are quite similar. So you all kind of have to go through heartbreak, ups and downs. And it is very interesting to see that maybe she was in a totally different time to us and a totally different place to us, but we can all relate to, to her problems. Yeah, those first love heartaches. In fact, there were some times I felt it took a kind of different personality this book when it was talking about her love interest because it almost had a bit of a feel of a YA novel 
rather than uh, you know a kind of nature murder mystery mashup. It then did become a bit more uh, kind of youth fiction at this point. But I would say actually talking about the mashup, it is one of the reasons I think the book has become such a hit, is it does marry this kind of beautiful landscape and wildlife descriptions with what is a real page-turning mystery with murders, courtroom drama and love and betrayal, which is a really interesting mix. So if, uh, Amber, did that work for you? Did it hook you in, the, um, the mystery to be solved? Yes, it did. I'm actually quite a crime and thriller reader. So I'm an avid reader of mysteries and, and like a crime and thriller genre. So that actually really, really got me. That kind of tipped it over the edge for me, really. I, yeah, I definitely enjoyed that part. So I'm not a romance lover as such, but when they were kind of morphed, as you say, it's almost kind of two different types of books almost. So it does have the mushy part sometimes and like a YA novel um, but also it's got that murder mystery element to it as well. Um, I was just going to follow up by saying yeah because I don't want to give spoilers because so much of the pleasure as we've said is this sort of page turning want to solve the mystery. Being very careful did you find the ending satisfying? I did actually yeah it was it was a nice twist for me I didn't really see any of the book coming to be honest every page that I turned I thought oh my goodness that's another surprise. So it was great to to end how it did. I think I was very satisfied with the ending. Yeah, there are a lot of twists and turns. I think I definitely early on in the book, I was like, I, I thought I saw the ending coming a mile off and then I felt a bit deceived. Yeah, I won't, I won't go any further than that. It was also a massive bestseller. It was the biggest selling book on Amazon in 2019. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? And it's also going to be filmed with Daisy Edgar-Jones, a British actress playing Kaya who we last saw in the massive hit, obviously, Normal People. That's been another recommendation on the podcast. So it looks like the more books we review on the podcast, the better, because they all end up getting made into TV hits. Yeah, and I thought, what an interesting choice if somebody, for somebody to be playing a character from the wilds of uh, North Carolina, and yet she's a British actress who's just been playing an Irish character in uh, that hit TV series. So it'd be really interesting to see what they do with it. Amber, I was interested to hear that this book kind of reminded you about a very old favourite of yours, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. Was this because they were both set in southern states, you know, Al Alabama in Harper Lee's book and North Carolina in Where the Crawdads Sing? And also, I guess there's a sense of prejudice and outsider and also there's a courtroom scene. In fact, no, I'm no, I'm thinking about it. There's loads in common with both books. So was that what you were thinking of? Yes, I think um, To Kill a Mockingbird is my favourite book of all time. I think I can reread it so many times. And actually, I think this book for me has a re-readability as well even though I know it's so twisty and turny so I kind of maybe will know what's happening but I think I would be able to read it again which is great I know that obviously the locations are very similar and like you say they have the courthouse dramas as well so that's very similar but I think kind of at its core it's got all the same type of values and you know it's concerning family issues you know what part of your family do you trust who do you have left who can you rely on um, and it's you know honor and pride and obviously there's kind of the racial tensions underlying it slightly as well which is in both so yeah so it did really remind me of it as soon as as soon as i started which i thought that was a good sign because i'm going to enjoy it <laughs>
One last question. Are there any Christmas books that are on your list or any that you'd want to recommend? Actually, I think um, I'd really like everybody to read The Grinch Who Stole Christmas <laughs> because I think even though it's it maybe is seen for children, um, it's still, it's so magical and it's very funny. And obviously Dr. Seuss is a great writer and it's then you can watch the film afterwards. Yeah, which is brilliant. But no, the book is great. And I think it's, it's so good even as an adult to go and return to that and, and read his silly mishaps. I haven't read that since my, my two were little, but yeah, I will go back and pull it off the bookshelf and give it another read. It is a great one. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Sort of returning to your childhood favourites, embracing that, that fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give it a read. <laughs> yeah, and it's got great illustrations as well, which is nice. Oh, well, thank you so much, Amber, for those recommendations. It's a really interesting collection for us to get our teeth into. We'll have more recommendations from another member of our library team in our next podcast. Our library experts are great for recommendations. If you can't choose your next read when you're at the library, it's always a good idea to ask for their advice. And of course, do try our Ready Reads Click and Collect service. And that's where library staff, as we talked about, pick a selection of books for you based on the kind of books you prefer. We'll put a link to more details about the service on our show notes. It's really amazing to think that Where the Crawdads Sing was Delia Owen's first novel. And she was in her late 60s when it came out. And it turns out that there's something to be said for debut novels, as it was another debut novel which just scooped the 2020 Booker Prize, Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart. Not only was it his debut, but it was apparently turned down 32 times before it finally found a publisher. It's about the life of Agnes Bain, Shuggy's mother, who struggles with alcohol after the breakdown of her marriage. And in an echo of Kaya's childhood in Where the Crawdads Sing, Shuggy is left to deal with his alcoholic parent when the rest of his family have been driven away. The book was a unanimous winner, according to the judges. In fact, I've just reserved the audiobook on Box, and I'm really looking forward to listening to it in the new year. All right, well, it's now the time in the podcast when we talk about a few of our new unlimited titles on Box this month. As always, you'll find the full list on our podcast show notes. One of our new unlimited titles is by Leanne Moriarty, whose novel Big Little Lies was such a big hit. This one is called What Alice Forgot and is the story of a mother of three who loses her memory of the last 10 years of her life. I'm really looking forward to reading that one, actually. And there's also Charlotte by Helen Moffat, which tells the story of Charlotte Lucas, who married the unfortunate Mr. Collins, who'd been rejected by Elizabeth Bennet, heroine of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. There's quite a few stories based on or inspired by Pride and Prejudice and this one I think works particularly well. Mr Collins is such a great character and Charlotte Lucas's predicament in the original story is really telling for single women of a certain age in the time that it's set. And there's Last Scene Wearing by Colin Dexter, the second of the Inspector Moore series. That's one I've downloaded already. I reckon it'll be perfect to listen to while wrapping up presents. And continuing the Christmas mood, there are several themed books to download as well, including a collection of Christmas stories by Enid Blyton and a Matt Haig Christmas special, The Girl Who Saved Christmas. As always, one of the featured titles for December is also our virtual book club choice. You'll find links to this online reading group, which we call Digital Readers, on the Hampshire Library's Facebook page. This month, our digital readers have chosen The Living Mountain by Nan Shepherd. It's an extraordinary book, a poetic piece of nature writing, as the author describes her journeys into the Cairngorm Mountains of Scotland. It was written during the Second World War and then lay untouched for more than 30 years before it was finally published. That's amazing. 
The Guardian reckons it's the finest book ever written on nature and landscape in Britain. And the audiobook is narrated by the brilliant Tilda Swinton. So download the book and join in the conversation through our Hampshire Library's Facebook page. There's just time to say thanks to BorrowBox for supporting this podcast. Don't forget you can use BorrowBox to download audiobooks and ebooks for free with Hampshire Libraries. And that's it for this edition of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Hattie Dulac. And I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. 